On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Michael Haken about revival and revivalism. Uh, it's obviously a hot topic in just America in general because this concept and these theological ideas are always floating about somewhere, whether it's your own past experience, your own current experience, or others that you may know of who are experiencing it. Uh, understanding revival and revivalism, I think, is crucial. And Dr. Haken is obviously brilliant on this topic. He's written a lot on it as well, and he gives us kind of the rundown, I guess, of the historical outworkings of revival uh, and revivalism. What are the differences? What do they mean? And what are missing in them or what should be in them? What we should look for if, if Jonathan Edwards is an accurate, good model of what revival is for someone who wants to be confessional, uh, particularly confessionally reformed in, in their theology. How does that fit? I think he gives a lot of really good nuggets, and we learn a lot from Dr. Hagen. I mean, he's, he's always a ton of fun to talk to. He's brilliant, uh, offers, you know, great stuff throughout the episode, so I think you're really going to enjoy it. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today, we're once again delighted to have uh, an honorable guest with us, Dr. Michael Haken. Uh, from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary to talk with us about revival and revivalism. So we've had Dr. Haken on in the past uh, to talk about uh, several other topics, including uh, John Gill most recently. And I think this somewhat goes along with that episode, considering some of the time period overlap. And I'm really interested in his take on just what revival and revivalism is and what that looks like. So before we get started, uh, Dr. Haken, I'll let you introduce yourself for just 30 seconds for those listeners who haven't listened to the previous episodes with you and don't know who you are to have a little bit of background. Um, I do want to mention that you have a new podcast, uh, Beads Podcast, that they should check out. So for those who haven't had the chance to listen to his podcast yet, we highly recommend it. So Dr. Haken, I'll let you introduce yourself real quick. Great. It's uh, good to be back with uh, both of you again. Um, Yes, I teach uh, full-time at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, where I serve as professor and uh, chair of church history. I uh, did all of my training in uh, Canada, where actually I still live. Uh, I commute, uh, which is uh, another story. <laughs> and um, grew up in the UK, grew up Roman Catholic, uh, was converted in the 70s. And... Um, uh, took a PhD at the University of Toronto, and uh, I've always loved history, so it was uh, providential in many ways that God led me into the uh, area of church history as a vocation. And yes, I do have a, a new podcast. Uh, it's about, at uh, uh, this point in time, there's about five or six episodes. Uh, it's called Beads Podcast. It's named after uh, the Venerable Bede, who was a church historian, uh, whom I have uh, admiration for in the 8th century. And um, basically, it's on church history, just uh, the entire range of church history. Obviously, certain themes will come up again and again and again, I'm sure. But uh, it is basically a, a, just a podcast on church history. Good stuff. Awesome. Um, so we, we want to talk to you today about revival and revivalism. So maybe I guess the best way to start this conversation is just with the definition of revival and then a definition of revivalism. So how would you define those two terms? Well, revival would be obviously, um, it's, a, it's a, a term that starts to emerge in the, as a common term in the late 18th century. Uh, 
one of the earliest usages of it in the way we use it is 1674, a letter of John Owen, where he writes to a man named Charles Fleetwood and urges him to labor after spiritual revivals. And coming from Owen, who is a very strong Calvinist, uh, but very aware of the weakening of Puritanism at the end of the 17th century, uh, that's a very telling uh, a statement. And so revival speaks of the work of God the Holy Spirit in renewing, awakening uh, the church to all of her blessings and benefits in Christ. Um, and overspilling outside of the church into the larger community, uh, bringing about conversion and issuing in, issuing in uh, good works and mission. So uh, revival, is a, it's, it's not an easy thing to pin down, uh, but that, what I've given you there would be really kind of a, an Edwardsian understanding of what revival is about. Uh, the impact on the church is the epicenter and then the larger impact as that goes out, uh, kind of like ripples, uh, a stone hitting a, a pond and the ripples of water uh, that are uh, the, uh, created by the, the stone's uh, entry into the water. And uh, revival is not revival if it doesn't impact the larger community. Mm -hmm. Now that might be only <clears throat> a given geographical area like the 1734-35 awakening or revival in uh, Connecticut. Uh, about 30 towns up and down the Connecticut River Valley were impacted by the revival at Northampton. Um, or it might be uh, like the Great Awakening, where it's the entirety of the Atlantic seaboard. Um, but there is always, it's not just simply within a local church. It has, it has some impact upon the larger environment outside that church in terms of conversion, uh, projection of uh, good works, and uh, mission. As far as um your definition of revival would you would you use revival and awakening awakening as synonyms or would you say an awakening um or maybe revival precedes awakening or how do those two is one within the church one is more broad how would you define those two yeah awakening uh, as it's used in the 18th century normally is the awakening of uh saints who have been slumbering and unbelievers to their dire state Okay. Um, it doesn't necessarily entail the conversion of these sinners uh, who outside the church, for example, but they, they, be, they are awakened to see their plight. Um, revival obviously speaks in its heart of the word of new life. And so revival does speak of conversion in a way that awakening might not. Awakening is broader. Um, uh, but even so, the, 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 the term that's used in the 18th century normally is awakening. Okay. Um, and uh, they're synonymous to some degree in the 18th century. I think you can, might be able to make, make a case for seeing awakening as uh, people being awakened to their plight and revival people being converted. Mm -hmm. okay. So what are some historical examples of, of revival? Because it seems like a lot of the examples that we see are in the 18th century, um, but I'm not sure that I see a ton of examples prior to that. I'm thinking, you know, you know, early church history or, or medieval church history. So is there a reason for that? Or are we just using different terms previously? Or what does that look like? Yeah, I think sometimes it's a terminology. Um, the Reformation is a revival. 
there's no doubt about that. Uh, when the Holy Spirit comes with uh, to awaken the church to uh, various truths that are being forgotten or submerged, um, there is always new life that comes with it. So if you look at, for instance, France in the 1520s, uh, France, um, 20 million people, and a uh, number of evangelicals in the 1520s, and that term evangelical is a Reformation term, it's first used in 1525 in the debate between Luther and Erasmus. So uh, evangelicals, 1520s, there's probably 2,000. Um, John Calvin's converted somewhere in the early 1530s, uh, ends up in Geneva. When he dies in 1564, there are 2 million evangelicals in France. So you go from 1520s to 1560s, that's 40 years, that's one long generation, maybe two generations, if, depending on how you, you cut it. You go from 2,000 to 2 million? Yeah. I mean, somebody needs to do a study of, again, of, of, of just that as, a, as, you know, the numbers there. How did they grow? What was, the, what was going on in evangelism, church planting? And then you, you step back and you ask the question, so... Uh, what, what areas of society were impacted, and you find out 50% of the upper class and 50% of the middle class were converted. Hmm. Wow. Most, of, most of France is, 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 is poor, and for, for a variety of reasons, the, the, the poor were not reached by the Reformation, um, probably largely because the Reformation is very centered on literacy. So that, that's revival. I mean, there's a church at a uh, place called Charenton, uh, just outside Paris, 15,000 members by 1560s, 15,000 wow. members. Uh, so we're not the first generation of megachurches or whatever. <laughs> um, so that's a good example there. The Puritans, new, new revival, Richard Baxter in Kidderminster, when he went there in a town of about, a, probably about a thousand people, um, he said that there was scarce a street in which you might find one family that loved God, went to church. When he left there 20 years later, he said there were many streets where there, were, where there was scarce a family that did not love God and go to church. In other words, entire streets converted. Um, uh, there's a revival in Northern Ireland called Six Mile, at a place called Six Mile Water. Uh, there's a revival in 1620 at a place called Kirkashots. Um, where a Scottish Presbyterian minister at a Lord's Supper uh, celebration in the summer, which was held outdoors, um, saw probably 500 converted in one day. Uh, he never saw it again, um, but people never forgot that. Um, a minister down in Essex, known as Roaring John Rogers, uh, because of his the volume of his preaching. Uh, th there was a day in the 1620s, Thomas Goodwin records it, uh, where um, he preached on the Bible and the, his people's lack of love for the scriptures. And the entire congregation was reduced to weeping. It took, it took Goodwin 15 minutes to get on his horse. He was weeping so uncontrollably after mm -hmm. the service. Um, so there are, yeah, there are periods of revival like those, local, uh, larger revivals. Uh, Jonathan Edwards knew of them in, in uh, New England before the Great Awakening, uh, talks about them. Um, but the Great Awakening is 
probably the the largest and most extensive uh, to that period of time. And and many of those involved in the Great Awakening compared it. There was only one thing they could compare it to, which was Pentecost. So if if all of that is revival, what what would how should we define revivalism? So I guess, and I don't know if maybe maybe I'm wrong, but maybe this gets into more 19th century, the Second Great Awakening, and some of the controversies that went on there. But um, is is this a different phenomenon? Is this a um, maybe a twisting of legitimate revivals, or or how do we understand revivalism? Yeah, revivalism is really uh, the application of techniques to produce revival. It it obviously is linked with a, a different theological perspective. Um, revivalism emerges to some degree uh, in the Second Great Awakening, which begins in probably 1792, runs through the 1830s. And you have figures at the end of that Second Great Awakening, like Charles Finney, who no longer have a clear understanding of the sovereignty of God in giving revival, and for whom revival is a matter of, if you do X, you'll get Y. If you do X, whatever, you'll get revival. And um, the, the revivalism really, I think, is the hunger for the same sort of thing that they'd seen in revival, but because of the theological commitment to the freedom of the human will um, and uh, the role of uh, the minister in being able to persuade people um, and etc., cetera, um, and a, I think a deficient pneumatology, you have the emergence of really kind of techniques. And so by the late 19th, early 20th century, you have churches who will schedule revivals. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, you don't schedule revival. <laughs> I mean, there's certain things you can do, certain things you can do to prepare. Uh, I mean, obviously praying is one. Um, and very, the very fact that one of the earliest uses of the term revival in the way we have come to use it by John Owen, 1674, labor after spiritual revivals. So it doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. But the idea that if we, if, if, uh, and this is the way Finney puts it, um, if we, if a farmer goes out and sows seed, he'll get a crop. Well, well, not exactly. It could be, there could be no water that spring and you're not going to get a crop. Uh, You know, um, it could be a famine, whatever. Uh, But Finney takes that and says, if a minister in a local church does this ABCD, he'll get revival. And uh, Owen recognizes, I think, that yes, there are certain things we have to do, prayer, uh, certain themes we have to preach on. But having said that, revival remains in the hands of a sovereign God. So I think revivalism and uh, probably the the uh, the book that uh, really kind of captures this is Ian Murray's book on revivalism, mm-hmm. um, which deals with the Second Great Awakening. Um, it really emerges out of this context of a shifting theology, um, a broader Arminian theology, and then the thinking then that with the freedom of the will, we can do certain things and it'll produce a certain effect. So I don't know how long ago it was that I read this book um, from R. Scott Clark, Recovering the Reformed Confession. And in it, he seems to contrast 
this vision of spirituality that is centered around the ordinary means of grace with Jonathan Edwards type revival understanding. And it seemed to me that was the first time I had ever seen these two really pitted against each other. And I was curious what your thoughts were on that and how uh, people who are confessional Baptists like me and Brandon, how should we think about revival? Um, is revival, it seems like that that's naturally a good thing, but it does seem that some others are going to say, well, if you're not going along, plotting the ordinary means of grace, then you're going too far or you're falling into a revivalism type of understanding. Yeah. Um, yeah. That That's then now the, uh, the other challenge in this whole area of thinking. I mean, one of the, the one that emerges in the uh, in 19th century is with Finney, with this idea of technique. But in recent days, you've got this uh, response by certain, I think initially scholars uh, or thinkers, and then it's trickle down effect into, into local uh, congregations, which is that God's, the ordinary life of the local congregation is not a revival scenario, and we, we shouldn't really be trying to trying to, to, to attain that. Uh, we need to just be faithful in the use of the means of grace, so the preaching of the word, um, uh, the Lord's table, uh, prayer, etc. And uh, God will God will own that and bless that. And that uh, there is almost a suspicion of revival, mm -hmm. and uh, among some. Uh, authors. Uh, Edwards now is become the kind of bete noir, the, the, uh, where Finney once held that place, now Edwards does. In other words, Edwardsianism is a downward slope. Yeah. And the argument is that there is an inevitable relationship between Edwards and Finney. Finney does come out of what we call New Haven theology, uh, Nathaniel Taylor, and Nathaniel Taylor has links to some of the men that Edwards would have mentored or mentored by men that Edwards mentored. So Samuel Hopkins, Joseph Bellamy, and the new divinity is what they're called. And uh, so the argument is uh, Edwards inevitably leads to this. So we need to go back beyond Edwards. Um, but that really means you probably have to go back beyond the Puritans because as I just indicated, uh, Owen is, is, is hungering looking at the state of Puritanism in the late 18th, 17th century, and he realizes things are not right. We, we need, we need the outpouring of the spirit. Uh, John Howe, 1678, preaches a series of sermons about, oh, probably about 20, I think, on Ezekiel 38, 39, and the outpouring of the spirit. And uh, so eventually you end up by saying, you know, uh, the problems of, 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 uh, of Edwardsianism uh, are grounded in the, the, the subjective, subjectivity of the, of the Puritans, their, their hunger for experience of the spirit. And that we, we just need to go back to the reformers then. Um, and I, I just think this, that this view, and I, I've seen it both in a scholarly uh, perspective and I've seen it at a local church level, I, I think it basically leads to a writing off of everything that's taken place in church history that we regard as part of our evangelical forebears since mm -hmm. the reformers. And um, there is no doubt that God has established in the life of, the, of, of a congregation various means of grace that we are to use, and God blesses those means of grace. But on the other hand, um, I tend to see 
what took place in the 18th century as just um, a remarkable interposition of God's mercy and grace. Um, and um, uh, in ideal conditions, uh, like the New Testament era, uh, it, it, it's a revival period. And so um, uh, I don't think that there is an inevitable connection uh, between uh, Edwards and somebody like Finney. Um, I think, I do think that once you, you it, inevitably when you have revival and the deeper the revival, uh, the more problems you're going to get. There's no doubt about that. Edwards knew that. Edwards talks about uh, times revival being dangerous times when Satan, Satan trying to counterfeit revival. Uh, but because Satan can counterfeit it and we have the sort of Finneyist, Finney, Finneyite revivalism doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Jordan, do you have something else you want to say about Edwards or? No, I guess you can move on. I, I, okay. I think, I think that's fair. I think yeah. you covered all the things that I was curious about. <laughs> so to focus in on the particular Baptist tradition uh, for a moment, can you talk a little bit about the, about Andrew Fuller and the, the prayer call of 1784 and how that relates to revival? Yeah, I mean, with the Baptists, in the particular Baptists in England, um, in America, particular Baptist life is really at a standstill. Uh, by, the, by the Great Awakening, there were about 25 Baptist churches in America. They were going nowhere, they were small, and they were largely insignificant. And uh, the really kind of meteoric rise of Baptists in America only takes place after the, second great, after the great Awakening, and in some respects, really almost after the American Revolution. Uh, in Britain, you have a large denomination. Uh, by uh, 1715, there's about 220 particular Baptist churches in England and Wales. And this is the denomination of the gentleman that we spoke about earlier uh, on an earlier program, uh, John Gill. Um, Gill's, Gill has a large influence. Um, and Gill had real problems with the Great Awakening and Whitfield. His problems are not so much the argument that this was an outpouring of the Spirit. His arguments are, I think, his main problem with the, the revival was ecclesiological. And Gill and many Baptists of the day had tied spiritual vitality to ecclesiological form. So that when the Holy Spirit is poured out in revival, inevitably it produces Baptistic congregations. Hmm. And so the very fact that these people, for Gill, for Gill, the state church was completely anathema. And the very fact that a guy like George Whitfield didn't uh, stayed in the state church, didn't show any inclination of leaving it. I mean, there were men like John Newton. John Newton wavered back and forth for probably the best part of five to seven years as to whether or not to stay in the state church or become uh, a nonconformist, as they were known, or a dissenter, um, a congregationalist. And eventually he opts to stay in the state church. But Whitfield never has those problems. Um, that is one of the downsides, I think, and I think some of the, the criticism that we were just talking about earlier um, about revival comes from the fact that a, a number of the 18th century men, like Whitfield, do not, they're really, ecclesiology is not important to them. Hmm. Gill obviously saw that, and Gill had problems with that. Um, the Baptists in England had gone through persecution from 1660 to 1688 vicious persecution by the state church, along with others who are outside the state church. Uh, pretty well every Baptist elder was imprisoned. Numbers of them died in prison. 
And so when Gil, Gil grew up, his, the, he was born right at the end of that period, of, right after that period of persecution. And his father would have gone through that. So he knew the cost that New Testament polity had been handed down to him and his generation. And so he was resistant to the revival because he, if this was really of God, these people would leave the state church and become Baptists. Hmm. And at best, Congregationalists. And um, thus, they, by the time you get to the 1770s and the uh, period in which Andrew Fuller has become a minister, um, Baptists were in a dire state. As, as Fuller said, if God had not appeared to us, we, our cause would have been little better than a dunghill in society. And I mean, he was a farmer, and it's a pretty, pretty strong image. Uh, most of us, well, at least I don't. I, I mean, I, I have very little to do with farming, and I'm, I'm a city boy, but even I can imagine what a dunghill on a farm looks like. Uh, it's smelly, it's, it, it, it has very limited usage, uh, etc. And um, as Fuller, and Fuller is speaking here from experience, far too many churches he went to, you had, you had a hyper-Calvinist minister who didn't preach the free offer, didn't urge the lost to come to Christ. There were no baptisms. Churches were declining. You have practical antinomianism in these churches. Fuller saw that firsthand too. Uh, people saying, you know, man, I, I, you know, I, I wish I could give up this sin. I just can't do it. When God takes it away, it'll be glorious. But till then, I just got to do it. And far as Fuller was concerned, this is, this is appalling. Uh, I don't know how much Fuller would have known of John Wesley since, uh, is uh, one of the reasons why Wesley um, is antithetical to Calvinism is he met particular Baptists who are antinomians. Hmm. And it, was, it just appalled him. You know, these people claiming to be among the elect and they're living, they're living, they're living like, uh, like uh, in sin. And they're among the elect. And so um, in the early 1780s, uh, uh, 1784 to be exact, uh, one of Fuller's friends, um, uh, uh, John Ryland uh, Jr., received a tract from John Erskine, a Scottish minister who had known revival in Scotland at Camslang in the 1740s, had corresponded with Edwards quite frequently, and was the main publishing conduit for Edwards's works in the UK, in Glasgow and Edinburgh. And one of the things that John Erskine loved to do was write to ministers, didn't matter what denomination, uh, and send them books. And uh, so it was he sent to John Ryland. Uh, he'd been corresponding with John Ryland for probably a number of years, and it was probably John Newton who introduced John Ryland to John Erskine. And uh, John Newton was a mentor of John Ryland. And uh, so it was in 1784, uh, Erskine sent to Ryland uh, Edwards's, what we call Edwards's humble attempt, which was a series of sermons Edwards preached in 1747 on Zechariah 8 and then published in 1748 uh, on the necessity of praying for revival corporately, of, of specifying corporate gatherings for one purpose alone, just to pray for revival. And um, it didn't have a lot of impact in his own day, a little bit during the French and Indian War in the 1750s, but its real impact comes after 1784. And uh, Ryland shares it with Fuller and uh, one of their, another of their friends, John Sutcliffe, uh, at a, an association gathering of the churches in the spring of 1784, 
uh, moves moves a motion that they would gather once a month on the first Monday evening of the month for an hour to pray for revival. And that's the prayer call of 1784. Mm -hmm. It begins very small, but that is the beginning of the Great Awakening. Mm -hmm. The Second Great Awakening, sorry. Right there. Got it. uh, so it'll leap across the Atlantic uh, by 1792. These prayer meetings, I've tracked them. These prayer meetings go on for the next 40 years. Um, Baptists, uh, by, by, uh, in 1715, there were 220 particular Baptist churches in England and Wales. By 1750, there's 150. They've lost 70. They're in decline. Uh, by, uh, the, by around 1810, so now uh, 25 years after the prayer call, there's around 1,200 wow. of these Baptist churches. Hmm. So, so it, is, it is a remarkable period of revival. Um, it doesn't have the earmarks of the First Great Awakening in this sense. There aren't people falling down. There aren't the physical phenomena. But as I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones said, um, if you go out uh, on a particular day and there's a thunderstorm and it comes down a deluge of rain and you don't have an umbrella, you're going to get soaked, understandably. But if you also go out and it's a fine rain and you don't think, ah, I, I don't need an umbrella. And you stay out long enough, you're going to get soaked the same way. And uh, likewise, revival doesn't always look like the uh, First Great Awakening in the 1740s, 1750s. Uh, it, it can come in different strengths. And the Second Great Awakening, at least among the Baptists, is, is, is of that quality. But as these men look back in their lives, they saw just a remarkable hand of God. So Fuller, when Fuller goes to Kettering uh, as the minister in 1782, there's about 120 in the congregation. When he dies in 1815, there's over 1,000. Hmm. So what, what would you potentially consider the, the most recent genuine revival that, ha that we've experienced wherever that is in the world? Do you have any takes on that? Well, that's a good question. Um, the 20th century is, is, is confusing on the issue to some degree because of the rise of Pentecostalism. Mm. Uh, in the 19th century, part of the, the fruit or the impact of the, great, of the Second Great Awakening is the holiness movement. And the holiness movement has certain theological perspectives that are problematic. Probably the most problematic is identifying a second experience in the Christian life with uh, what was called the baptism of the Spirit. And this is the genesis of Pentecostalism. And all you need to add, all, all Pentecostalism needs to add, is that the, I, the, the key characteristic of the baptism of the Spirit is speaking in tongues. So during the 20th century, you have the Pentecostal movement, then you have the charismatic movement, and then you have a third wave with uh, the vineyard churches. Um, and in certain parts of the world, Pentecostalism is probably the fastest growing uh, denominational um, label, commitment, whatever. And they would argue, obviously, that what they're experiencing is revival. Yeah. Um, and so that, I think, confuses the matter to some degree. But having said that, I think you have examples of the sort of a revival that you have earlier in places like uh, Kenya, uh, the East Kenya revival in, in the in 1950s. 
in the British Isles. It could be there's revival in uh, Norfolk in the 1920s, in Northern Ireland in the 1920s. Uh, the Lewis revival, 1949, with Duncan Campbell. Um, here in North America, possibly uh, Saskatoon, uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church, 1970. Uh, a man named Bill McLeod invited a couple of ministers named the Sotero Twins, uh, who came initially for a couple of meetings, stayed up for six weeks. Um, the meetings grew large, so large they had to move outside the church, rent a public facility. Um, it has some elements of revival. Uh, I mean, part of, part of the, I think, problem for those of us who love the uh, doctrines of grace and reformed faith is some of the more recent manifestations of revival in the 20th century have not always been linked with um, uh, reformed theology. And so uh, we, I think we, we, we make the mistake of, okay, if there's revival, it has to be linked with reformed theology as it was in the first great awakening. And for many sectors of the second great awakening, uh, it's a mistake to think the second great awakening is basically Finney. It's not. Finney's right at the end of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have the new divinity men who are trained by men who are trained by Edwards. Uh, you've got the particular Baptists and uh, so on. Um, but I think, I think that's, that, that can be a mistake. I mean, when I look at the Wesleys, I mean, I disagree with them on certain areas of theology. And John actually sets up, you know, because of his belief in Christian perfection as a second experience, he sets up the basis for the holiness moon and in turn Pentecostalism. But having disagreed with him, did he experience revival? Yes, he did. And did, they, did the Methodists, the Arminian Methodists, know revival? They did. Um, and a number of Arminian Methodists in the 19th centuries uh, here in America, you know, you look at the ministry of uh, Francis Asbury, um, just remarkable ministry. Uh, in Ontario, a number of the Methodists, uh, one in every three people living in Ontario where I live was a Methodist by 1850. Mm. And there were virtually none in the 18, around 1800. One in every four Americans was a Methodist. Uh, by 1850. Uh, so I think, I, I do think that uh, people can experience revival whose theology is not solid. In, in other words, then I, I, I don't necessarily deny that what the Pentecostals experienced at the beginning of the 20th century was, was a genuine move of, of, of revival. Right. Um, so I, as I say, I think for some of us, uh, we have qualms because of our theological commitments. And I think sometimes people try to persuade, well, again, it, it's, it's, it's how to maintain your theological convictions and recognize that sometimes there can be movements of spiritual vitality where people don't exactly have those theological convictions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's, that's really helpful. Uh, my next question is, I guess, more of a pastoral question. Uh, and I guess it's maybe a two-parter. So number one, um, how should we as pastors uh, think through teaching about revival in the local church context, because um, maybe this is just more about where, where I'm, where I come from, but we, we, we do the whole scheduling revival thing around here where, I, where I'm from. So, you know, um, how to get people out of that mindset and to think more biblically and more 
more sound about revival. So that's, that's part one. What's the best way to teach about the, the concept itself. But part two, you know, especially I think with, with the whole pandemic and everything going on, people think that, you know, and I've seen it, you know, in, in God's providence, he's used this to make people wake up to, you know, the things of God that maybe they weren't, um, interested in talking about spiritual things at all before. So, you know, we've been praying for revival. We, you know, we desire it, but, um, how, how do we approach that desire and, and, and with a zeal that, you know, maybe that Owen was talking about that we want to labor for revival, but we don't want to be manipulative in a way that maybe Finney was. So I feel like, you know, as a pastor, I'm trying to strike a balance there and I don't know the best way to do it. Very good. Yeah. Um, I think um, I, I, to, to approach the first question, I mean, how do you, in, in, if you're in a context where the term is misused and it is misused, you, you, you can't just schedule, you know, okay, this is revival week, you know, right. whatever. Yeah. yeah. And you bring some, some evangelist in and he preaches and a few people get converted and we've had a revival week. Uh, that, that's <laughs> a, that's a, a, a in, in many respects, that's a travesty. Yeah. Uh, to yeah. be honest. And uh, so, how do I, how how do you respond to that? Um, it could be the case you, you, you the word maybe in your context is is cannot be used. I it could be the case that whenever somebody hears revival, they immediately think of this, and even if you taught on it, they, they'd still be thinking that way. And maybe oh, you need to talk about awakening, uh, renewal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but having said that, I think uh, teaching on what is revival, what does it look like, uh, how did Edward see it. Uh, how does it apply to the modern day? There are books like um, uh, uh, E.M. Murray, Pentecost Today, I think it is. Uh, Brian Edwards, Revival. Uh, Brian Edwards has two books published by Evangelical Press on revival, and particularly as it applies to the local church in the modern day. Um, and they're very helpful. They're written from a British context, but I think they're translatable into a North American context. So I do think, I think you need to have some teaching. I think people need to read on it. They need to recognize that maybe the way the term has been used in their geographical cultural context is not the way the term historically developed and what the term historically meant. Um, uh, I think you, you're the best judge of this. I think you need to determine, you know, is the word irredeemable in our context? Yeah. Um, in where I live, no churches ever schedule revivals. It's just, <laughs> Just not done so the term can be used with and people people uh have enough generally speaking there's maybe a memory of the great awakening and oh yeah that's something that happens extraordinarily so you can use it that way uh you could you could you could use the term in my context in your context it, it maybe you need to use awakening a renewal and then what can we do i i think the first place is prayer i remember being at a church speaking about revival uh, probably 20 years ago now, and um, here in southern Ontario. And in the morning, there were about, um, oh, about 700. It was a Sunday morning, 700. And I, I spoke on the necessity of praying for revival and gathering for prayer. Somebody said to me afterwards, so how many people do you think come to our midweek prayer meeting? So I thought there were 700 there that morning. I thought, well, 100, 120? And we did kind of an Abraham uh, Lord thing, you know, in, in Genesis where, you know, if, if there are 15 or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so I got down to, it was about 20. 
Wow. Mm. He said, he said, I, I said 120. No, guess again. 90? No, guess again. And I said, I'm going down or up. You're going down. And after going back and forth like this, kind of played it out. It was about 20 people. Wow. Seven on a Sunday morning, 20 people. There's something wrong with that. Yeah. Now, um, it could be the case that it's the format of the midweek prayer meeting. And maybe, you know, people were gathering for prayer in their homes and unbeknownst to this gentleman. But my suspicion is that, uh, that that's a part of the problem, maybe the midweek prayer meeting. And the midweek prayer meeting for many churches has become another teaching session. And when people pray, and this is not inappropriate, they pray for, you know, Aunt Jenny who's got, who's in hospital and uh, mm-hmm. so-and-so who needs a job. And uh, it, it becomes a grocery list of prayer, prayer needs, but not revival. And um, so I think, I think there needs to be teaching on, I mean, when Fuller and these men met for prayer, it was once a month and they didn't pray for all those other needs. They prayed simply for revival, for the outpouring of the spirit upon their churches, the preaching of the word, the extension of the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you read the prayer call, they've got about four, four items that they prayed for. Mm-hmm. And that's, we need to get back to that. And I, for all the talk about revival, I don't think we're serious until we start praying. And this is something God has to do. It has to be his spirit. We, we, we have to put ourselves in a position where we, we are uh, open to it. Um, and that means, I think, praying for it. I, I think in terms of the preaching, I think it would not be inappropriate to preach a series on awakenings in the, in the scriptures. Hmm. Uh, what do they look like? What, is, what does Pentecost look like in the book of Acts? What flows out of it? Uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, I think, would be inappropriate. I think part of our problem here, too, is we're scared of the Holy Spirit in our churches because of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. Uh, we've tended to, to, tended to, to not talk about the Spirit, but the Spirit is vital, obviously, to bringing about renewal and awakening. Mm-hmm. So I think there are things we can do. Um, I think being reformed is, 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 um, helps make us aware of the danger of manipulation. Yeah, and uh, so that I don't think you necessarily have to talk about that, but I think I think you have to. We one has to be those in leadership have to be aware that they don't try to manipulate a situation. Yeah. Um. So I would say those two things. One, I think there needs to be explicit teaching, but I I do think we need to get serious about prayer. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. So at at corporate prayer, not just prayer individually. Yeah. Mm but corporate prayer, gathering. Uh, the, what, this, the, the awakening among the Baptists in the late 18th century was one hour, one, sun, one Monday evening a month. So for those who want to, I guess maybe the question is twofold. Those who just want to understand the history of revivals through the Christian church, um, and then maybe those who want to just understand what r- revival is theologically, are there resources that they should go to? I know you mentioned um, the Pentecost today and then Brian Edwards. Are there others they should be looking at? Um, that's a, it's a good question. I, um, uh, those two are the ones that initially come to my mind. Um, and we mentioned the uh, the Ian Murray Revival and Revivalism book earlier, yeah. too. Yeah, Ian Murray's Revival and Revivalism. The Pentecost Today is probably a bit better. 
in this sense is that the revival and revivalism really deals with historical materials yeah uh and the second great awakening um i think sometimes some of the biographies of men who will live through this uh ian murray's biography of jonathan edwards uh published in the late 80s uh, a new biography it was called at the time um is really helpful where he spends a lot of time in this area yeah arnold dallimore's uh, one volume or two volume life for George Whitfield. He came out in two different formats. Um, would be helpful. Yeah, th those are the things that initially come to my mind. Uh, there are, I've got probably half a dozen other books, but nothing comes to mind. Okay. Uh, yeah, thank at this you. Point. Yeah, thanks a ton. Brandon, did you have anything else you wanted to really ask? No, I don't think so. All right. Well, Dr. Haken, we want to thank you for joining us on the show. I think everybody will definitely really enjoy uh, the material here. I think this has been really helpful. So we want to thank you for that. And for those who've been listening, we want to thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast that's out there. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly. When you place your first wager at Bet MGM, simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code champion 150. Then Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.